phenomenal expense. Why doesn't she take care of herself? Now, wouldn't it be great if she could maintain herself? But then I thought, she's a hollow lady. She has no heart. She has no ability to care for herself. So she needed the scaffolding. And I thought about how many of God's people live their Christian lives simply by the scaffolding. You can see it all the time. They rely on the externals, pastors, seminars, college classes, professors, peer righteousness, dean of students, handbooks, running around, polishing, propping, fixing, mending. And the great tragedy is there's something missing on the inside. It should come as no surprise to you that God never intended authentic Christianity to be hollow, habitual, ritualistic. He did not call us to be great symbols of the kingdom in the harbor of his church. He called us to be a mighty army. We are not called to be monuments, but to be a movement. And that takes heart. I sense that a lot of God's people are like chocolate Easter bunnies. Sweet, nicely formed, attractive, tasty. But be careful, don't press too hard. Under trials and temptations and the pressures of life, we fold. Why? Because we're hollow on the inside. I think it would be well for us in the two chapels that we have to call ourselves back to authentic Christianity, to hear the call of the Spirit of God within us. Just let me remind you that authentic Christianity is not a matter primarily of externals. Authentic Christianity is not measured by the scaffolding. But that authentic Christianity is an inside-out affair. That at the very essence, authentic Christianity begins with the matter of the heart and the health of our hearts. It doesn't take you long in reading the Word of God to come to discover that God is constantly calling His people back to a heart relationship with Him. You think about Israel. Israel who had all the symbols, all the Levitical rites and sacrifices and forms and modes down to a T. You read through the prophet Isaiah. Read Isaiah 58 where God in essence says, look, I've had it right up to here with your symbolism. Right up to here with your externals. I'm tired of your fasts because you don't do at the heart level what is on my heart. I think of the prophet Jeremiah when he called Israel uncircumcised of heart. Or of Joel when he called God's people to repent and he said, rend your hearts, not your garments. And then we're ushered into the New Testament and the Son of God comes, God in the flesh, lives among us and he walks among the religious people of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now you talk about people who've got lifestyle, who've got externals. The Pharisees had it to a T. They had all their religious ducks in a row. And Jesus Christ finally pointed the finger at them and said, You are like whited sepulchers. You all polished up on the outside, but you are death on the inside. Authentic Christianity is a matter of what's going on on the inside. It is a matter of the inside out. Authentic Christianity is a matter of the heart. I think we need to understand that the throbbing theme of Scripture about integrity in our Christianity is that lifestyle without heart style before God is no style at all. And I trust that God somehow will move right into the center of our beings and strike a work of revival and renewal right at the heart level. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, please, to the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles, chapter 16. I'd like to begin here this morning because this is a profound statement on God's relationship to the heart of one of His chosen kings, King Asa. This morning, in the time that's remaining, we're going to be thinking about uh, God's heart search. Think about God's heart measure. And then that's going to bring us to a crossroads, heart surrender. God's heart search, God's heart measure, and our decision in the area of heart surrender. 
Second Chronicles chapter 16, uh, I'd like to uh, read verse 9 if you'll follow along in your text. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Heart search. I find it interesting that God in this text is involved in a heart search in King Asa's life. You need to know the point of God's search. The point of God's search in this text is the heart. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking for a heart that is fully committed to Him is essentially what the text says. What is our hearts? We need to stop and try to somehow get a handle on uh, what God means by your heart. The Old Testament scholar Sorg says that our hearts are the place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. Conscious and decisive spiritual activity. The New Testament dictionary of, uh, or the theological dictionary of the New Testament, listen to their description of this New Testament concept. It is the con comprehensive term for a person, you as a whole. It is your feelings, it is your desires, it is your passions, it is your thoughts, it's your understanding and it's your will. Now listen, it goes on to say that it is the relational center of your being where God turns to have a relationship with you. No wonder the heart is so significant to God. It is that very place where He relates to you as an individual. Let me tell you what the heart is. In essence, the heart, in biblical terms, is the authentic you. It's after you peel back all the layers of who you would like people to think that you are, and all the layers of your external... <laughs> we get hung up on this thing. He don't let you wander here? <laughs> I almost got choked to death right here at the Master's house. And I'll stay here and be a good boy for the rest of the time. <laughs> Where were we now? After you're done peeling back all the layers of your external, habitual, ritualistic Christianity, down deep inside the biblical concept of heart, it is the authentic you. It is the authentic you. It's who you really are. That's the point of God's search. And I think you know, need to notice from the text as well that there's a purpose here. And I love this purpose. You talk about motivation. I'm looking for God's enablement in my life. I would like to have God reveal Himself strong. I mean, there are times when life puts me in a bind. I'd like to have a little miraculous supernatural taste in my life at times. If you'll notice, the search is, uh, the purpose of it is, is that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those, to do something significant on behalf of those who authentic persons are committed fully to God. The point and the purpose of God's search. Now, I think we need to note as well that the text indicates that this search for your heart by God is an insightful search. The eyes, the eyes of the Lord. I like the way the King James translated it. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone whose heart is fully committed to Him. Now we take the Bible literally. We're committed to literal interpretation, but we don't uh, do it so far that we don't understand metaphor. I mean, it's not God's two literal eyes came down, sprouted legs, and are dashing all over Canyon Country, the Master's College campus, through this chapel service. Look at, But what this is saying, metaphorically, is that God has perceptive ability. And the perceptive ability of God moves into the territory of your life, into the arena of your existence, and His perception searches out your heart. Now, I want you to know that's an insightful search. In fact, that's a little unsettling. I'll tell you why that's unsettling for me. Because I live in a world of external credentials. That's what we're based on. Uh, you know, you walk up to somebody and you say, uh, I want you to meet John. He's, uh, he's first baseman on the baseball team. <laughs> I mean, why do we tell people people's credentials? I want you to meet my father. Um, he's a doctor. Or I want you to meet... Uh, Dr. John MacArthur, president of the Master's College. Wouldn't it be amazing just to walk up to somebody and say, um, I'd like you to meet my friend John, period. Now, I'll tell you how unsettling that would be. In a couple minutes, you'd probably say to John, well, uh, what do you do? 
<laughs> we're always into credentials, aren't we? We're credential mad society. And I'd love God to search my credentials. I mean, as God begins this insightful search, I'd like to say, whoa, stay right there, Lord. Look, uh, guess what? Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I've been in the pastorate for 17 years. I know that's not a long time, but I made it this far. And we've married him and we've buried him and we've discipled him and we've born him, birthed him into the kingdom. We put homes back together again. We wept with those that wept and we've rejoiced with those that rejoiced. We're teaching the word. Got time to write a little couple books. And Whoa, what do you think, Lord? You know what he'd say? Say, Joe, I'm not impressed. He'd shove it all to the side, go right for my heart. I got guys in my church, I think, who would like to uh, stop the Lord and flash their business card. I'd say, hey, Lord, look, man, it's not every day of the week you get a corporate executive on your team. What do you think? Not impressed, goes right for the heart. Lord, I'm president of the student body. You know, I'm a varsity athlete, I'm a cheerleader. I'm a real nice person in the dorm. I'm real good to my roommate. Uh, God says, not impressed. Yeah, I like see your heart. It's an insightful search. You see, we need to know that when God searches our lives, the authentic you, he is not into credentials. He's into character. And I wonder how many of us can be vulnerable to yield to such an insightful search. It's going to happen whether you yield to it or not, but it certainly is a blessing in the beginning of becoming something at the core of heart revival when you're willing to say, all right, Lord, I cooperate. I love David. I mean, how vulnerable can you get? Psalm 139, David says, search me, O Lord, and know my what? Heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Move through every crevice, every corner, every closet door of my heart. And then lead me in righteousness. What vulnerability. What David really did was ask for a spiritual EKG. Come on, Lord, measure my heart. And that needs to be our commitment as well. If you understand the reality that when God enters the arena of your life, he's into heart search, it'll be a good beginning to becoming something meaningful on the inside. It's the first step to authentic Christianity. If you're going to realize that God does a heart search on your life, then you, you need to ask another very important question. Well, well, what is he looking for? I mean, how does God measure my heart? That leads us immediately to heart measure. I have a good friend who says uh, that he's really tired of believers who, saying th- who act as though their spiritual maturity rests in reality of how much they know about the Word of God. And to that point he says, God is not into tape measures, but God's into dipsticks. Uh-huh. Dipping right down to the core to measure what it's like in there. And I'd like to ask the Lord, oh, how do you measure my heart? How can I have some barometer so I can grow? Well, let's begin. The first measure of a person's heart is right here in this text. Measure number one is loyalty to God. Uh, I want you to look at the word in verse 9. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed, is the word. Some of your translations may say perfect. I want you to know right now that the word perfect is that God does not demand that you have a perfect heart. That will only happen at the completion of our redemption when we go home to be with him. Well, what what does he mean here, heart Just what the NIV says, fully committed to him. The Hebrew word is used of the legions at the inauguration of King David. As his installation as king, it goes down in the book of Kings, telling about every legion comes to one legion. It says, of this legion, their hearts were fully committed to David. They were singular in their loyalty to him. Heart measure number one is loyalty. They say... uh, In what respects does loyalty come to the fore in my relationship and behavior? I'll tell you when when the test of loyalty is. It's when life puts you in a bind. It's what you do when life puts you in a bind. 
It's exactly the context of this setting. Notice verse 1 of chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah, fortified Ramah, to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. A little history lesson in case you need to be brought up to speed. At this point in Israel's history, Israel was divided into two nations, the ten northern tribes called the nation of Israel, the two southern tribes called the nation of Judah. King Asa was king of the two southern tribes, Judah. Baasha, king of Israel, now an apostate state before God, they moved down Israel into Judah and the king of Israel sets up a fortification around Ramah and Asa, militarily speaking, on a human level has had it. Because all Israel has to do now is put the pincer movement on them and they're done. Life has put King Asa in a bind. What will he do? He's got two options. First of all, now that he's under military siege, and it says in an earlier text, by the way, that Asa had a heart fully committed to God. That tells me something important, that uh, by the time you get to this text, he no longer has a heart fully committed to God. It's not a one-time commitment, it's a matter of maintenance. So, but the fact that he has been committed to God says that God can work on his behalf. Option number one is to trust the God, Jehovah of Israel. Who, could I ask you a question? Has God delivered the, His people against great military odds in the past? You bet. He's shown His hand strong against the uh, Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Mosquitoites and all those tribes down through there. Constantly God has superintended against great military odds. And King Asa now has the opportunity, listen very carefully, in our weakness He is strong. And God delights when we are behind and in a bind in life because that's when he can glorify himself. He has the opportunity to call on his God and to be delivered by supernatural power so the whole world will know that God is still Jehovah God. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Wow, go for it, Asa. Option number two. You see, option number one is a little uh, risky. I mean, you're out of control. <laughs> you have to wait for when God's going to deliver you. That's not always easy. Uh, you wonder how God's going to do it. Option number two, read with me if you would please. Verse two. Then Asa took the silver and the gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. And he said, let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you. Well, that's the second option. He can do embezzlement in the treasury of God, take the silver and the gold that is to use to the glory and worship of God, and buy off Ben-Hadad to come, strike a military treaty, so that the power of men, not of God, might ford off the incursion of the ten northern tribes. And I want you to know it's always expensive. It's always expensive when you make a decision not to trust God to get you out of a bind and to take it in your own self. He expends the treasury, he expends the glory of God. He tells the whole world that God, Jehovah, El Shaddai, is no longer able to deliver them. You see, what had happened is that life had put Asa in a bind, and by Asa opted not to be fully committed to God anymore. It's kind of like what happens on this campus when you've been having too much fun to be into the academics, and suddenly you realize that tomorrow is a major exam in that course that you're right on the edge. Now life has put you in a bind. And I wonder how fully committed your heart is to God, to righteousness. Isn't it amazing how creative we can get when life puts us in a bind? Or that papers do, and maybe you can borrow someone else's work or cheat a little bit on a resource. Loyalty is seen as to how you respond when life puts you in a bind. My daughter Libby, 16 years old, something interesting has happened. Libby has discovered boys. What's worse than that? You got it. It's that boys have discovered Libby. I got my shotgun out and all ready to... She came home the other night. She said, hey, Dad. She said, um, can I talk to you? Yeah. She said, uh, five guys like me. What should I do? <laughs> I said, so never missing an opportunity to preach. I said, well, 
said, uh, which one do you think is most committed to Christ in her life? So what I was really trying to do was begin to cultivate in her mind that she needed to look for character with spiritual qualifications being up at the top. You see, I think any girl worth her salt by the time she's 16, 17, or especially 18, has a whole list of qualifications she's looking for. 19, 20, 25 things on the list. First, of course, is they know Christ is their Savior. Secondly, they're fully committed to walking so they can help you grow in the Lord. And... But I find it's interesting when people get to be 36 and 37 and 38, something's happened to the list. It's usually shrunk to two. Warm and breathing, that's all. Anything coming across the pattern, that's it. <laughs> and if you get to that point and life has put you in a bind, I wonder, is there anybody, guy or girl, who will say, hey, wait a minute, there's something more important in my life than marriage, and that's marriage in God's terms, to be fully committed to Him. And some Prince Charming comes along who doesn't know Christ as Savior. And guys, I, I say this to our shame. I've got girls who tell me all the time, Pastor, you know what the problem is? It's the unsaved, unsaved guys I date treat me more like a lady and are better gentlemen than a lot of the Christian guys I date. And you say, but uh, he's really got good character and can make me happy. I, I wonder. See, that's when loyalty comes to the test. Are you fully committed to God when life has put you in a bind? That was Asa's problem. It was our senior year of college. One of my good friends had been dating a girl all the way through the four years. They had planned to go to the mission field together. And in that plan to go to the mission field, they had made their uh, commitment to the land of Brazil. Late winter of that senior year, my friend decided that God really wanted him in the pastorate. My friend Jan had to struggle with, um, what would she do now? She felt that the very core of her being, that God had equipped her for world missions, God had burdened her for world missions, and that her wise choice for the best in her life was world missions, not the pastor. I could hardly believe it when Jan told me, she said, uh, Denny and I aren't getting married. I'm going to Brazil and he's going to be a pastor. You know what that meant? I mean, she had only three and a half months left of college. I mean, all, all the guys worth anything were taken, right? I mean, it was over. She's walking all by herself with her God to Brazil. And I want you to know that Jan left our campus with her heart showing loyalty when life puts you in a bind. That's the first mark on the dipstick. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking for someone whose heart is fully committed to him. There's another mark on a dipstick. I get this one from the New Testament. Would you come there with me quickly to the uh, book of Matthew? Matthew chapter 6. We're going to take a couple more measures out of the book of Matthew. Christ has so much to say about uh, the measures of our heart. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Why don't we begin in verse 19 where Christ says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now note verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you want to know where your heart is? Look at, where you, look at your treasures. Now, what's significant here is that the context says there are basically two treasure chests. There is the treasure chest of things that are temporal, things where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And there is the treasure chest of eternal realities. And God says, I'm just kind of watching where you dump on your treasures. That's all I have to do. And I can tell a lot about your heart. See, I can tell a lot about you by the way you read your newspaper. 
I don't need to even know your name. I just watch you read the newspaper. If you're a sportaholic, bam, you pick up the paper, go right to the sports section. If you're into current events, front page. If you like a little political rhetoric and debate, it's right to the editorial page. If you got a nice financial portfolio, you pick it up and you go right to the financial section. If life is driving you insane, you go to the comics. That's where I go first every time. If you're severely depressed, it's the obituaries. <laughs> you want to see if you made it through the night or not. You know, am I there, aren't I? Yes, tell a lot about you, by the way. God says, I know you by what you do with your treasures. What are your treasures? Your time. Time is a valuable treasure, and I want you to know this. The more you process life, the more valuable a treasure you understand that time really is. Says, watching what you do with your time. Dumping it into the treasure chest of everything that's gone soon, or doing anything with your time for eternity. Time with God and the Word, time alone, time to build that intimacy at the heart level. Money. Money is a treasure. You say, whoa, you're a minister and you said money's a treasure? I thought ministers aren't supposed to be into money. Well, I want you to know I'm not in it for money, but I haven't turned down any paychecks yet. Money happens to be a treasure. I mean, it's the way I facilitate my whole existence. And I think the Lord watches my life and watches what I do with my money. He says, it's a significant reflection of your heart. I, I love the false views of tithing and stewardship we have going around the kingdom. I was watching one of your West Coast preachers, uh, oh, lots of months ago now. He's got a kick out of his message on tithing. He was saying, and his, uh, I hope you have to be careful not to be too dramatic here. You'll know who I'm talking about. But he was saying, uh, said, 10% for God. That's all he requires. Can you believe it? Wow, 10% for God. That's it. And I'm thinking, I don't know where he got that. He obviously hasn't been reading the stewardship parables in the Gospels, but great thing. Here you go, Lord, 10%. And you run off to the bank with your 90. 90 for me, 10% for God. That's not biblical stewardship. It may come as a surprise to a few of you that God says all of our money belongs to him. You say, you mean everything I get I write and put in the church offering plate? Well, John would take it at Grace Church, but uh, that's not really what it means. It means that all of my money is spent and perceived in the values of the kingdom. People in my neighborhood know that I'm a minister. I moved in and they said, there goes the neighborhood. A minister just moved in. But I think it happens to be a great testimony to the glory of God to use my money to prove that my children are fully clothed and in their right minds in the neighborhood. So uh, we perceive our money as a way to glorify God. We think it's important that our children know that their Father in Heaven provides for their needs. We use our money to do that. And we put it in the treasury chest of eternity by letting them know that we provide your needs because this is exactly how your Father in Heaven will treat you. We live in one of these insane neighborhoods where nobody has dandelions. you have dandelions in California? You do, huh? No, no dandelions in California. We got them in Michigan. And we got this... It, nobody has dandelions on their lawns in Michigan, in our, in our neighborhood. And I didn't think that God called me to that neighborhood to reseed lawns with dandelions. So I take a little bit of God's money... It all belongs to him. Down to the hardware store four times a summer. Buy my little bag of weed and feed. I got a little cart. I get up early in the morning while the dew's on the grass so I can see the wheel tracks. Fill the cart up with my little, with my little thing. Go back and forth across the lawn to kill all the dandelions. You know why I spend my money like that? Because I think God's name deserves that in, the, in my neighborhood. Now we watch how we spend our money. We don't get so financially in debt that we can't let the Spirit lead us. In what we can do for the kingdom directly with all of that. Just to know that God made your treasures and your money is watching that. Your treasure is your life. We were interviewing our uh, youth pastor several years ago. And one of the men on the board said to him, Well, he said, uh, you're going to be our youth pastor. I assume someday you're probably going to want to go and get your own church be a senior pastor. <laughs> I loved his answer. He said, um, No, I see. he said, Why would I want to do that? He said, uh, all senior pastors get to do is work with people. You might change a little bit of their mind. You get a little more of their money for the kingdom or you might. But I'm working with people, young people. They can give their whole life to God. He said, that excites me. 
And I just wonder, when you perceive your life in terms of things like career, future, your dreams, you got two treasure chests. I wonder if you're dumping it in a treasure chest of all this material, all that's famous, all that the world says is successful and prestige and status. I wonder if you're taking that great treasure of your life and saying, hey, whatever it is, I want to be used for kingdom purposes. I want to be used for eternity. I want to have impact, whether I'm a pauper or a king. I want to have impact for forever. And God just says, I'm just kind of watching where you dump your treasures, that's all. And I know your heart. Loyalty. What you do with your treasures. Thirdly, let's turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 4. Well, I'll tell you, this one penetrates me. Chapter 9, verse 3, it's one of those great confrontations between Christ and the Jewish leaders. At, the same, at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, now not out loud, this is what they're thinking. They said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your what? Hearts. I want you to know that the way you think and what you think about is an accurate reflection of your heart condition. And wow, how we mask our thoughts, don't we? You bet we do. You're just back onto the campus, what, for only a couple months or so, and she came back and she brings this five-closet wardrobe back with her. And you can't believe it. You know, your parents scraped and pinched pennies to buy you two new outfits for this fall. And here she comes, marching down through the campus. And you say, oh, hi, Barbara. How oh, Barbara, that's a fabulous outfit. The next day, Barbara, whoo, that's real. Whoo, Barbara, you're looking so good. Where'd you get that? Man, love it. That's what you're saying. And at the very same time you're saying those words, up here you're thinking, who does she think she is? I mean, she could have given half of that to world missions. I mean, she really loved Jesus. Look at all the boys following after her. They just like her clothes. She's going to learn someday that boys don't like clothes forever. They're looking for character. Then they'll start following me around the campus. I know that. <laughs> God says, um, I'm just kind of um, hearing your thoughts. You know, there are, there's not much privacy left anymore. When you registered for this college, they took your social security number. They took all kind of data. If you have a credit account, some big computer someplace knows more about you than you'd like to think they know. But there's one sector of privacy still around, and that's right here, between your ears, right here. And we have this uh, false sense of security that uh, that's where we can play all kinds of games with never getting caught. And so we play out sexual fantasy in minute detail. We think thoughts of bitterness. We plot revenge. We creatively think about how we can do evil and not get caught. I guess we ought to remember that the Bible says, as a man thinketh, he soon becomes. But um, God says, when I measure your heart condition, think about your thoughts. Loyalty when life puts you in a bind, what you do with your treasures, your thoughts, it's another one. Not, a, not many pages away, chapter 12, verse 34. Again, we want to catch a little bit of the context. Let's start with verse 33. Make a tree good, Christ said, and the fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and the fruit will be bad. He's talking about hard things here. If at the core the tree is good, the fruit is good. At the core the tree is bad, the fruit is bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Now, Christ was never the loss of words for these apostate Jewish leaders. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, 
we just said that we have learned to really guard our words so that um, people don't always know what's in our heart and thoughts. But here, the Jewish leaders have said evil things, and the context dictates that when evil things come out of our mouth, it is a clear reflection that we have an evil problem in our hearts. I've been with people, sometimes great Christian leaders, and it's like, I was, oh, don't say that, your heart is showing. I want to hear them say that. And I must admit, I've been saying things at times where I'd like to grab the words right here and shove them back in. That stole, your heart is showing. Don't let that, don't let people see that. You see, our tongues are the little tattletales on our hearts. You get all dressed up in your Christianity and it's like having your slip showing. Angry words, words that refuse to forgive, words that cut, words that rip another person's reputation to shreds. By the way, God never gives us permission to have the right to anybody else's reputation. I wish we had more time to talk about that, but um, God says, uh, I just want to listen to you. You know, I was always struck in the, in the New Testament where Christ said at the, uh, at the final uh, act, you will give an account for all your words. I thought, man, that's really nitpicky, isn't it? I mean, let's get on to the issues. I mean, give an account for all my words. Why do we give an account for all our words? Because Christ says that's the living proof of your heart condition. That's why it's not that God nitpicks. It is model A, model B, example F about what your heart condition is all about. So he says, I measure it by your words. The next one is found in the Gospel of Luke. Actually, it's found in Matthew, but the parable in Luke expands it just a touch more and I think uh, helps us see it, in, see it in a deeper light. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 8. You say, how many of these things are we going to do? Oh, about 25. No. <laughs> We're almost done. Take heart. Luke chapter 8, we've talked about loyalty when life puts you in a bind, your treasures, your thoughts, your words. Now in this great parable of the seed and the soils and the sower, I want you to hear what he says about the seeds falling on good ground. Verse 15, but the seed on good soil, and I was going to explain it. When the seed, the word of God, falls on the soil of your life, it is good soil if... With a noble and good heart, you hear the word, retain it, and persevering produce a crop. How interesting. What is, and I love the way the NIV translated, a good noble heart is a, is a heart that hears the word of God, retains the word of God, and produces fruit through the word of God. What a measure. How do you respond to the word of God when it falls on your heart? First of all, hearing. And I know hearing is tough. I've sat in lots of chapels just like this, and I've sat through literally hundreds of church services. I know how tough it is to discipline yourself to hear. How our minds go out here for a little while and, and out here for a little while. God says that a good and noble heart comes to an encounter with the Word of God that's in its attentive, it's willing to hear. Of course, there are some of us who probably came onto this campus, and I don't know you, but I just know that in every Christian community, and certainly in our church, we got people walking in that back door every Sunday morning when the Word is taught. They fold the arms of their heart as soon as they come across the threshold, and in essence say, I don't care what's taught, prayed, said, sung, or whatever, I'm not going to change, and that's it. Amazing how stubborn we can be about our sin, huh? I think Jonah is the primary example of how stubborn sin can get. They finally said to him at the end of chapter 1, Hey, what can we do to get this storm stopped since you're at fault? You know, he could have said, I'll kneel down and pray and repent. I'll go to Nineveh. That's what will stop the storm. You know what he said? How do you do? He said, throw me overboard. He said, I'd rather die than obey God. Wow, how stubborn we get about our sin. Of course, God has options you've never dreamed of when you get stubborn like that. Try three nights in a sleazy underwater hotel. <laughs> you see, the Lord is a lot like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He always gets his man. You can run, but I'll tell you this, you can't hide. 
Well, if you're just inattentive and not disciplined, or maybe you're stubborn like Jonah. But maybe you're a little more refined, cultivated than that in hearing the Word of God. I, I love it when people hear the Word of God with reflectors. And I sense that a lot of times when I teach the Bible, people are all sitting out there with these huge reflective dishes over their heads, two handles on it. They're listening and say, oh man, Sally really needs to hear that. Here we go. You take a little more in, one for Bob. Oh, Bob, great. I'll tell you this, God did not design His Word to be something to bounce off your reflector to somebody else. He designed that we listen to the Word of God as though we had giant wide mouth funnels over our hearts that we would take everything we could get of the Word, funnel it down, integrate it in and make it make sense on the inside till it changed our behavior into the likeness of Christ. Hearing the Word. Good heart hears the Word of God. You say, oh, <laughs> but well, you ought to hear some of the people that teach the Word of God. Look at you, stole man. You just go up there on and on and on and on. And, you know, I found great comfort that God even spoke at one time through Balaam's ass and it made sense and it was a significant statement. I say, Lord, I guess maybe you could use me too. And when you walk under the Word of God, regardless of who the channel is, you need to know it's God speaking to you. You need to forget the channel and say, God, speak to me. I want to hear what you have to say. And you'd be surprised how when you open your ears like that, He begins to make sense in your heart. Notice, though, that the good and noble heart doesn't just hear the Word, it retains the Word. Now, that's tough. I see a lot of you taking notes. That's special. That's one good way to retain the Word of God. But some of you got dresser drawers full of notes. You say, there we go, I took the notes. Someday I'm going to get to them and review them and... Retention. Retention is tough. I hate to tell you this, but I could probably give you a couple of real nasty, sleazy little ditties that I learned as a little kid in the neighborhood. I could give them to you word perfect and full meter and just the right rhyme. But don't ask me to give word perfect recitation of the passages of scripture I memorized six weeks ago. It's amazing how Satan delights to pull the plug on everything that's good and jam everything that's rotten. But it's by the renewing of our mind that our lives are ultimately and finally cleansed. It takes a little hard work to retain the Word of God. Hearing, retaining. And notice that the measure of a good heart is not just responding to the Word by hearing and retaining. Notice that a good heart produces a crop. Did you hear that? God deliver the kingdom of those of us that think that the end result of the Word of God is to make us smart. God did not give us His Word to make us theological geniuses. He gave us His Word to change our lives, to produce righteousness, to stretch us into the likeness of Christ. And any shortchanging of that process is an abortion of the very purpose of the giving and the revelation of God. And you get straight A's in your Bible courses. That's not the measure. The measure is righteousness produced through your life. The character of Christ growing more and more and more. Ephesians chapter 4 until we come into the fullness of the measure of Christ. How does God know your heart? He just watches how you respond to the Word. Response to His Word. Hearing, retaining, producing a crop. Let me give you one last measure. It's going to take us back to the book of Matthew. This is most penetrating. And this dipstick the lines of loyalty and treasures and thoughts and words and our response to the Word of God. Let's add one more niche on this dipstick. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. In the context here, Jesus is talking about their traditions, uh, the way they come before God, their worship to God. The sixth measure, and our final one today, and there are many more, by the way, but I've chosen these six, is the measure of how you worship God. He knows your heart by your worship. Will you please note in verse 7, you hypocrites, Christ said to the religious, externalized Pharisees. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Did you hear that? Wow, how penetrating. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Oh, it's really easy to give lip service in our worship to God. By the way, I want you to know that worship is not just what happens at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. 
and worship is not just what happens in this chapel service during the week. You must understand that worship is a daily experience of proving the worth of God by how you live, walk, where your heart is, sacrificing, surrendering to Him, laying our lives on that altar. Romans chapter 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice to do all that He wants you to do. I have a friend that says the only problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. And worship is presenting my body steadily, maintaining that surrender to Him. But worship is also what happens on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Christ is talking about their worship traditions. And we pastors have a phenomenal perspective of worship on Sunday morning. I walk out 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. I sit down. I look out over the assembly of God's people. They've come to worship the true and living God. And most of them are there with their nose in the bulletin reading all the announcements. What a great way to get ready to worship God. And I can just see one of them. They point to the youth thing. They say, hey, look, can you believe the youth department's doing that? Well, when I was in, a kid in church, we used to never do that kind of thing. I can't believe we really slipped that way. Won't put it down. At our church, we call people to worship. We have a theme of worship about God. Let's say it's the grace of God. And I get up and I say, welcome to the worship of the true and the living God this morning. We're going to praise God for His great grace. He has been so gracious to us. He has given us so much beyond what we deserve. He has saved us. And we're going to rejoice in that this morning. Hymn number 48, Amazing Grace. What number was that again? 48. Oh, we sang that six weeks ago. You know, I'm going to be a little more creative around here. I'm tired of singing Amazing Grace. Now, I want you to know, this doesn't happen in my church, but I see it in other churches, you know, where I am. Besides, it's not my church anyway. It's his. I just happened to shepherd there. And uh, so then somebody says... And we're going to sing all five stanzas. <laughs> five stanzas, come on. The first was bad enough. The last, maybe, but all five. Then let us stand. Oh, that does it. Let us stand. And we're going to stand in honor to God. Come on, we can sing this sitting down. Try us. I mean, it'll be beautiful. I had a pastoral prayer in my first first church I pastored. Uh, I had a deacon who used to time my pastoral prayers. I remember going to one deacon's meeting and the chairman said, is there anything for the agenda? And he says, yeah, I'd like to discuss the pastor's prayers on Sunday morning. I think they're too long. Last Sunday was six minutes and 46 seconds. Said, Dear Lord, forgive us. We did not mean to be so much into prayer. No kidding. Now we'll try to remedy that problem. Then it comes time to worship God by opening our hearts and letting Him talk to us. Say, you're worth my attention, Lord. Speak to me through your word. I submit to your word. And you get up and you open the word and they start dropping like flies. You know, you can see them all over the place checking out. About 20 minutes into the worship by teaching the word, they're going... Have you got the time? My, my clock must have stopped. And at noon, all the wristwatch alarms go off. Beep, 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 beep. All over the sanctuary. They're shutting their Bibles. I'm done. I, I don't know I'm done, but I'm done. It's noon. It's over. That's it. You know what? Let me tell you something. I think God weeps at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And I want you to know, too. That as the prophet Isaiah said to Israel and Christ said to the apostate, externalized religious system of his day, it could be said of us, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are someplace else. He measures it by worship. Well, this great grand divine heart search that insightfully penetrates the territory of your being, that is measured by very real commodities, has clear marks on the dipstick, brings us to a crossroads. That crossroads is heart surrender. Heart surrender. What would it mean then to surrender my heart? It would mean that I would perceive and understand afresh that to live my life by the scaffolding is not authentic Christianity. 
that atrophy of the heart might very well settle in. And while everything looks good on the outside, I may be very cold and distant and hard at the inside. And it's letting the Spirit of God become a jackhammer to come in there and start breaking the crust and saying, Lord, I want to start relating to you on the inside. And then it would be going through those measures. First of all, saying, Lord, give me a spiritual EKG. Praying with David, see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. It's that mellowness. To be mellow at the core with God. And then it's taking those measures and making a clear commitment at every level. Because I want you to know this. That lifestyle without heart style before God is no style at all. I have friends in the ministry. One particular, my heart is so grieved, who always measured everything by externals. In order to sing in the choir, you had to have your hair a certain length. And in order to... Um, be counted to be really valuable in the work you had to conform to all these external things and my dear friend is out of the ministry today because not once but twice he failed God desperately at the heart level I have to look back and I say man he was nothing more than a high tech spiritual robot Hey, how easy it is for me. I feel the drift. It's the normal drift, the bend of the flesh. A high-tech spiritual robot. I say, God, call me back. It's about two minutes before the Sunday evening service, and one of the ushers rushed in. Said, Pastor, Bob just dropped to the sidewalk. He was a friend and a deacon. I ran out and pushed through the crowd. There was my friend Bob in his 50s, laying on the sidewalk. Obviously, it was very serious. He wasn't moving. And the EMS truck pulled up and three guys came out of the truck and they stood there and they said, saw his hair was a little disheveled and his tie was crooked and his shoe had gotten scuffed and said, now, wait, you get the hairspray and the brush and I'll fix the tie and you get the shoe polish and we'll get this guy laying straight and we'll get him all fixed. Oh, I want you to know it was no time for cosmetics. They ran out of that truck and they took one look at my friend Bob and he went right for the heart. That was the core of the issue. And I want you to know that's what God goes for every time. Every time. No, there's no time for cosmetics in the kingdom now, if that's all you have. Now, it is true that the right kind of heart style will produce a great lifestyle and character. But if you don't have that heart condition, cosmetics aren't worth a dime.